Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our adventure today takes us to the city of Tacoma, where we're going to meet with uh, Kim Badir. Kim is the director of venues and events for the city of Tacoma. Uh, she was also named a woman of influence in venue management in 2007, the year the program was created. Uh, one of the top 10 women buyers you should know in 2015, one of 10 leading women venue executives in 2016, and an entertainment venue executive luminary in 2017. Back in 2018, venue executive of the year by the International Entertainment Buyers Association. That's about as big of an intro as I've given to anybody. <laughs> so Kim, what are you doing slumming here with us today? Uh, are you kidding? It's my pleasure to be with you two luminaries. Kim, let me ask you right away. Uh, <laughs> I see the Tacoma Dome on TV every single week now, featured as part hey. of American Ninja Warrior. Uh, if you have seen the show, it's a, it's a great show. My family enjoys it. But it's people who compete on this insane obstacle course. It airs for a couple hours, a huge time slot every week on NBC. Usually it's done outdoors in a variety of cities. But the Tacoma Dome was host. Uh, how, did, how did this all come about? This is a, such a treat, and I'm so glad that you're watching the show. So we, this is actually the second time we posted Ninja Warrior, and the second time it's been indoors. The first time, they uh, they tried to portray it as being in the Seattle-Tacoma market, and uh, so they showed shots of Seattle, and we went, oh, yeah, well, whatever. We knew it was the Tacoma Dome, but this time it was like 100% Tacoma Dome all the time. The building looks absolutely great on TV. We're it so does. excited. Um, I keep taking screenshots of the TV. Oh, there we are again. Yeah. <laughs> um, just love the show as well. And they were so super to work with. And it was really our COVID savior because we didn't have, as you know, and no one had a lot going on. Uh, because the film industry had such strict protocols, uh, they were able to come in and, and do all the daily testing and things and do it all quite safely as well. So we were super excited to host them. We hope they'll come back um, because, of course, they filled a hotel as well when they were here filming. Um, and it's just so exciting. It's like being at an Olympic Games or something. The people are just so athletic. And I have to tell you that not this time, but the last time they were here, they actually let a few of us try the course. That's what I was going to ask. Did you get to try it? <laughs> I won't say run the course because I didn't quite make it past the first obstacle, but I did get a little further than my uh, compatriots. So I'm pretty proud of that. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's so dynamic. And I, oh man, like you said, they show these beautiful venue shots on the outside. It seems like almost every episode they have the announcer, we're live here from the Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington, you know, his whole voice. And then it shows this outdoor shot and it's got your marquee that's, you know, showcasing the local talent or whatever it is. And it's, you've got that beautiful venue shot. And I'm like, this is the dream. This is the dream right here. Two hours on national television every week and outside shots of the venue. Like it's, it's the dream. Yeah, you just can't you can't buy that kind of promo and publicity. So we're we're really honored that they they chose to come back to us, and uh, yeah, it was super exciting. 
Well, Kim, for folks who, who you know, don't get the difference, as you mentioned, between Seattle and Tacoma and, you know, what the Tacoma Dome is, maybe they've not watched the show. Give us a little bit about, you know, your place in the market and, you know, what the uh, Tacoma Dome is right now. Oh, sure. Happy to. So the Tacoma Dome, we like to call it iconic. It's a 40-year-old plus building. It's been in the market, obviously, for a long time. It's also the largest indoor structure pretty much anywhere, uh, largest indoor wooden domed structure. So we are in the Seattle metropolitan market, 3 million plus people. Seattle is right up the road, about 25 miles or, you know, we like to say two hours, depending on the, the traffic conditions <laughs> right. on I-5. Um, so Tacoma is very much its own standalone market, but also draws from that entire footprint as well. And because we're the largest venue in the market, obviously you can come here, do a night with us and come out with a really good return. Uh, we, we're great at selling tickets. We have an awesome marketing director in Tammy Bryant and, a, and a, an amazing booker in, in, in Tom Alexander. And so uh, you were a great place to watch a show as well in that market. Uh, the roof, of course, the dome structure and the wood lends itself to incredible acoustics. Every time somebody posts on social media that the sound is bad, I have to resist from weighing in and saying, well, that's because your ears are bad or whatever. But um, obviously, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot about the mix and the, the, the sound. Right, right. But what sure. really did it for me is we had, um, we had Chris Bodie with the Tacoma Symphony, and you could have heard a pin drop in the building. The sound was so exquisite. So uh, it's a, just a great building to watch a show. It's got a great vibe. Um, when you can pack like 20,000 people plus in, in for a concert and there's no suites. So um, that works for us and against us. You know, we don't have that revenue source, but also we don't have that dividing line either. It's just 20,000 people watching the show together. It's just a great vibe. Can we, you know, obviously uh, mentioned in your uh, intro here, you are director of venues and events. So we're not talking just the Tacoma Dome. You've got a lot of buildings you're watching over. Yeah, we have um, we have a great convention center, the Greater Tacoma Convention Center as well, uh, perfectly sized for our market. And it's, of course, just crawling back to life now as convention centers are everywhere. We also uh, work with the Tacoma Rainiers. They're the AAA affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. So they're in Cheney Stadium, a great partner there. And we also have uh, women's soccer there and uh, men's soccer. So they're, they're really multi-purpose. And then we have, um, if that's not enough, we have a couple of historic theaters that just turned 100 a couple of years ago, and then another associated theater there. And of course, our department works really closely with Tacoma, South Sound, uh, tourism, sports. And we also have the Office of Arts and Cultural Vitality. So they do all the public art and public art programs. So yeah, it's a, it's a big department. We have a lot of fun. We have a, a, just a solid, incredible team of people that I get to take credit for all their work. So it's a, it's a great gig. It was a lot of people to watch over in this past year. And I know that that was a, a big concern for you. And and you kind of got things going, because obviously you've got a lot of doors to reopen, right? A lot of us have maybe one or two arenas or an arena and a theater, but you know, you've got, you've got a lot of doors to open. And so you kind of got a group together, the, the Washington Safe Meetings and Conventions Group. Yeah, so there are a couple of groups, actually. So on the convention center side, um, a number of us pulled together across the state to try and convince our governor that it was safe to reopen for meetings in different formats. And so we were able to crack the doors open on convention centers a little earlier, because, of course, they're really large spaces. Um, so we could do that more safely. And then a, a group of the major music venues got together in, a, in another kind of collaboration coalition 
we weren't quite as successful getting those larger gathering spaces open. I mean, they obviously are all, all open now, um, but we worked really hard to educate the uh, the politicians and and the bureaucrats on what it is that we do and and how we're able to do it safely because that's what we do. I mean, we 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 take safety as our number one value every day in all of our menus. And so we were very focused on things like uh, the GBAC star certification, got that very early for the venues and, and really committed to that level of sanitation and cleaning and trained up all our staff. Like, we were literally ready to open for a year. <laughs> That's what we, we say in LA, we've been reopening for a year, you know? Uh, um, so we should be pretty good at it when we actually get to accomplish all that we want to. Yeah, I'm sure it's interesting too because you do have, you know, involvement in all these different venue sizes to kind of see how that varies. You know, I'm speaking with friends of mine who were, you know, in theaters or in convention centers or in arenas or stadiums, they all kind of had different challenges, whether it's that they were sort of focused on capacities or if it's, you know, a convention center, it's mostly meetings and, you know, you would normally do meals and how do you do that in COVID? And I'm sure that presented its own challenges, but also gave you so much exposure to the wide swath of the industry and what, you know, what it was when you, that you were trying to bring back. And hopefully that gave you a little more leverage when you were talking to these powers that be that, you know, you kind of were like, well, we've got this, this, and this, and it's really important. You know, we have all the staff and we know what we're doing. Yeah, there, there was a lot of crossover, or there is a lot of crossover too, of course. So our first real event post-COVID was in March. We had a gymnastics competition, not at the Dome, actually at the convention center. So yeah, so we do we we do kind of go back and forth and we have that option, you know, to move things around. So we were able to learn really early how that worked and take that learning over to the Dome as well for the larger event. And what's really cool about the Dome is it's so big, even though our governor still has one restriction left in the state and that's that for gatherings over 10,000 people you can only do 75% capacity but we're going okay bring it on because 70% of our capacity is probably as big a show as you'd ever want to do anywhere so uh, we're quite comfortable that you know going forward we can we can totally get back to work a lot yeah lots of learning from all the venue types what I'm sensing too is you know, we've all heard about this pent up demand that people really want to come back and people right. save their tickets and, you know, not too many refunds or anything. But what I'm also sensing is um, we need to be gentle with people because there are definitely still people out there who are a little nervous about coming back. And, and it's because we've been gone for so long. We've been hiding in our homes for so long. And while we think we want to come out, some of us are not quite ready. And I think we just, we need to be really um, cognizant of that. So if somebody's wearing a mask, if being respectful that that's their choice and, and those sort of things. We all want to get back full bore, but it's it's going to be a bit of a journey. Well, I think people are going at different speeds too. You know, some people are like, I'm vaccinated, you know, get me in the largest crowd I can be in. And other people are like, I think I'm ready to go in the grocery store now, but a concert, maybe not for a few months, you know, like, and so you have to kind of be respectful that everyone has their own comfort and safety level and they all kind of are moving at their own speeds and you know events although we might be ready to have them return you know people might not be you know they want to come to them but they might not be quite there from a safety standpoint yeah I, I think I think you're definitely right there and I like the way that it's rolling out and that the amphitheaters here are going to 
you know, be the first to go and they'll be outside, which people automatically think is a lot safer. And then by the time fall rolls around and the vaccination levels continue to rise, that's when people can be ready to come back indoors. You know, you talk about uh, people different, you know, at different speeds. And I think that's so important to remember. I remember at our, at our first reduced capacity event, talking with one of our guest attendants. And he said to me, this is the first time I've been out of my house in 14 months. He said, I've had all my groceries delivered. I just, we just, myself and my partner, we just didn't leave the house. And I just thought, wow, that's, you know, it's, again, there's so many different experiences people have here. And I think you're, Kim, I think you're right on in the, the, you know, we need to be cognizant of that, that not everybody's ready to, you know, hit the ground running. Yeah, that's right. But when they are, uh, we will be there to welcome them with open arms. and Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned the Office of Arts and uh, Cultural Vitality. Uh, this is Tacoma Creates. Would you talk a little bit about this? Because I think this is a really neat program. Oh, sure. I'm excited to talk about that. So a couple of years ago, a group in our community got together. The, the, the government of the state of Washington had come up with this uh, cultural program that cities and counties could elect to collect sales tax, uh, percentage of sales tax, specifically towards culture, heritage, science, and, and those kind of programs to support their viability, obviously. And so we were actually the first city in Washington to put this on the ballot. And it was the highest voter approved initiative ever. Every precinct reported like basically 99.9% in favor. It was amazing. The group that um, put it on the ballot did a great job explaining what it was about and why it was important. And it was a real good chance to talk about arts and culture and why they are so critical to the fabric of our communities. And so it went through and then uh, the city is now charged with rolling out that program. <laughs> basically we're rolling out this program at the start of a pandemic, which is, was a bit of a challenge in itself because of course a lot of the nonprofits and cultural organizations were, were just slammed. They, their doors were shut. Every opportunity they had to interact with their patrons was like ripped away. Uh, so we were able to very quickly pivot the program and get dollars into their coffers so that they could um, hate to use that word pivot, pivot. I'm trying to take it out of my vocabulary, but they literally <laughs> did all their online work and we were able to support that programming. Uh, we gave out almost $4 million last year and, and we look to give out five plus this year because sales tax collections have remained so strong. You know, when we first started the program, we thought we're in trouble. We can't give out too much money because we have no idea how much we're going to collect. But then of course, online purchasing uh, just went through the roof. And uh, so sales tax uh, collections have been stronger than ever anticipated. So we're able to get um, some great dollars into the hands of really deserving organizations that are doing such great work in our community. I think it's so important for a venue to be a good part of the community and a good community partner. But you've not only done that, but you've been a, a partner with, with the industry and you know uh, a lot of involvement with IAVM over the years. Uh, and talk to me specifically, I'd like to know about your involvement with the Women in Leadership Program. Sure. I'm always kind of torn, like, why do we need women in leadership programs? We should just have leadership programs, right? But I'm obviously in our industry. It is changing. But when I first started, we were like unicorns, you know, female arena managers were uh, specifically right. or few and far between. And I came up through the arena side. So we just felt it critical to be able to get together and focus on our collective issues, which, you know, could be um, inclusion issues or diversity issues. And uh, I remember at an arena managers conference during one of our first sessions around women in leadership, and we had um, a number of gentlemen 
um, attend the session and they weren't sure whether they should come, but of course we welcomed them with open arms. And that's when we were first able to say, well, it's really leadership for everyone. And it's really great that you're here to understand the challenges that we might have. So you can get out there and be advocates on our behalf as well. And so over the years, we've had some really great speakers. We've had some incredible female role models who have you know, been on panels and talked about their journey. Uh, so it's been a real labor of love to put those kind of things together for the industry. I guess our goal is ultimately that those kind of things would become obsolete, that again, we could just talk about leadership and, and find the best person for the job and pay them at the same rate as you would anybody else to do that job. That's, that's our ultimate goal. I think that's, it's, you know, obviously something that still remains a passion for you because you are still active uh, on the uh, IABM Industry Affairs and Diversity and Inclusive Leadership Committees. Yeah, I think it's going to be, it's a lifelong passion. I have a passion for lifelong learning and just, and also just for doing the right thing and uh, creating doorways, opening doorways for everybody and, and making sure that their ambitions can be realized as well. I mean, I think there's nothing more gratifying for a, a manager when someone that works for you moves on, for example, to another building and, and um, moves onward and upward. I mean, you never want to see anybody go. You always want to keep your great family together. But it's also really exciting to watch people spread their wings and, and know that you, you played a part in getting them to where they want to go. Yeah, it's all about sort of that reaching back and helping the next generation. I think it, it should be a part of every good manager's practice. You know, it's not just about elevating yourself, but as you get elevated, how do you reach back and pull the other people up with you, just as hopefully someone above you did to you. And I think, you know, if, if even if people did not experience that from managers above them, there's a way to start that cycle. And you, you know, I think we should all be looking, yes. you know, underneath us and how do we pull up? Because then when you, you know, mentor and, you know, give back to that coordinator or whoever it is that's underneath you, they're going to feel that same draw to do the same once they get to that level. And it's all kind of cyclical and, you know, helps, you know, the generations forward from there. And as you mentioned, you know, you're wanting to, see all these changes and those changes, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you're kind of practicing what you're preaching and you're really like pushing for this, you know, change and more women in executive level roles, I think people see that, you know, I know Dave mentioned on a previous episode at one point where he said he, he would do these certain things because he wants the interns and the managers and the you know, coordinators underneath him to see that he's not above doing things like picking up trash on the concourse floor, because they're going to remember that and they're going to reflect it because they're going to think, oh, you know, I saw Dave do this or I, you know, my manager, my director, my VP, they were interested in advancing equality or they were focused in on this and I should do that. I love that passion. You know, I want to continue that on and they helped, you know, me. So I think it's so important and something that you know, we can all be better at and some of us more than others. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I, I would also say that, you know, the most the most beautiful sound, there's two most beautiful sounds, I think, to, to anyone. And one of that is your is your name. And so the more that we can learn everybody's name, and I know sometimes that's challenging. There's hundreds, literally hundreds of people that work with us, but that's what name tags are for. And the second is thank you. It's such a magic word. It truly is. And Everybody wants to know that they're an important part of what we're doing. Um, I, I always say to my custodial staff, for example, we could not do what we do 
unless you do what you do. Like you are literally the cog in the middle of our wheel. It's not me. It's not our booking manager. It's you all. You know, if, if our building is clean, people are going to notice. And if it's not, they may not overtly notice, but they'll know something's not right. And they may not be as anxious to come back. And so everybody on our team is indeed like a, a critical team member. And uh, through the course of this last year, we've really been able to focus on that. You know, of course, our operations folks didn't have the luxury if that was a luxury of working from home. They had to show up, come to work every day. And sure. um, we had to be respectful of that. And, and uh, we're, we're so excited that a lot of them did hang in with us through the course of, of the last year because it wasn't easy. You know, everybody's doing furloughs and trying to come up with what's the magic number of hours that we can have to make sure everybody keeps working through this. And we had a few key retirements, but outside of that, we mostly kept the team together. And it's really exciting now that we feel like we've made it through. We can take a breath and get back to what it is that we know and love. Absolutely. I, speaking of what you love, I know that, you know, we were kind of touching on it a little bit. Industry, you know, education is a, is a true passion of yours. So let's, let's talk a little bit to that person who's maybe, you know, in that, you know, that first job and they're wondering, you know, hey, what opportunities are out there? Or maybe somebody who's been in marketing for a while, but they're interested in, you know, becoming a, a GM. You have done a lot, you know, with like the USA Venue Management School and Graduate Institute. So, so talk to some of those options for, for that young person who's listening, who's like, hey, wait, how do I get out of this particular role that I'm in. I'm, I'm loving it, but then how do I grow? Uh, thank you for asking that because that is truly a passion for me. My very first job way back in the annals of history, um, somebody told me about IVM's menu management school and said, you must go. And I was okay. Um, so I did go and as a very young manager, literally met lifelong friends and associates who I can pick up the phone at any time and call. I know you've heard this over and over again, and I know EAMC provides that same sort of networking and family over the years as well. It's really critical to convince your um, manager or supervisor to send you to something like that. It's an investment, not only in you personally, but in your job role and in your ability to perform to the best of your ability. So so that venue management school, as, as many people know, it happens. Uh, it's a week-long school that is, is over a two-year period. And, um, you know, we're not teaching rocket science. That's a secret. Don't let anybody know <laughs> that. So it's not so much even about the content of the classes, which is really relevant because it's the, it runs the gamut from box office to marketing, to security, to leadership, to everything uh, a manager would need to know, but they're only our classes. So it's really, you know, just very top level, big picture stuff. But the critical piece is you're in a class of 40 to 50 people and there's two or three sectors of classes. So there's like 150 people plus there, and even more if you count the other years. And you get to sit beside somebody you've never met before, introduce yourself and say, you know, Paul, my name's Kim. I'm from Tacoma. This is what I do. What do you do? And I get to learn all about Paul and I, I get his contact information. And after I leave school, you know, I may have a question for Paul and I can call him up and he's going to take my call. Because he sat at lunch with me and had that interaction or had a deep discussion in a diversity and inclusion class about his journey and how he got there and, and where he wants to go. And it's just a, it's a rarefied atmosphere. It's an intensive educational experience and an intentional networking experience that is second to none I've ever seen in any industry. You, know, you can go to your four-year college and you can get a sports management degree now, which is great. But I would still say you need to go to venue management school for these two weeks because it's like the icing on the cake of your uh, of your trajectory in this amazing industry that we also know and love. Um, can't say enough about it. 
And then we do have the Graduate Institute program, which takes it to another level. It's much smaller classes. It's more like um, it's a session where you're driving the discussion now because you've probably been in the profession for a while. You've maybe had some leadership and management experience. And so now you're in a, a room with your peers. And again, you can talk about the best leaders that you've seen and what were the qualities and what would you strive towards? Um, how do you problem solve? And you get to work in a class with other small groups and, and really learn about different uh, methods of problem solving or just learning more about yourself. Um, so there's such great opportunity in, in those courses and, and classes. And specific to your question, if you're in marketing and you're looking to get into something else, again, sitting in those classes is a box office manager, is a finance manager, is an HR manager, or an event coordinator, or an operations person. And so you will be able to ask the source, like, what is your job like? What do you do? How did you get into it? How could I get into it? I know there's people that have gone to venue management school and then will call up somebody in another venue and say, can I come shadow you? and understand what it is that you do. Right. So yeah. opportunities are boundless. It's it's neat to see, you know, obviously we talked about at the beginning, uh, some of the awards that you've won, the you know, like 2018 Venue Executive of the Year. Uh, but here's the thing, it all started in an unlikely place, right? So you kind of got things rolling from the, the Eastern Canadian Arctic, <laughs> showing that you can succeed from anywhere. So so talk to me about that time when you were, what, what was the name of the city, uh, Igluic? Can you imagine a, a better name for a place above the Arctic Circle than Igluic? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so um, I got out of college and I wanted a bit of an adventure. And I have to tell you, this I don't know why I'm even telling you this, but I just had a thing for penguins. I thought penguins are super cool <laughs> and I wanted to see penguins in the wild. So I had this opportunity to go up to this community and actually, um, it was a swimming pool project. So I was going to build a little swimming pool and teach people how to swim. There's a lot of things wrong with that because we're talking the, the Arctic here. So I get up there. The first thing wrong was the building the swimming pool was supposed to be in wasn't finished. So I ended up actually working with the construction crew to finish that building and then discovered that there wasn't even a lot of indoor plumbing. And so people didn't really know what swimming was. It's a classic government program, really. And then the ice uh, only went out for like three weeks a year. Um, so they didn't really experience ocean swimming either. So again, a lot of things wrong with it. But the biggest thing wrong with it is there are no penguins in the Arctic. No. They live in the Antarctic. Right, That's right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, there was no Wikipedia to look that up back then. You no, know, a great cultural experience, but wrong on so many levels. Wrong and right. <laughs> so you started off, you know, there and then, you know, obviously uh, opening up uh, some, some facilities there, but... But how do, how do you get from there to, you know, uh, GM of the Crystal Center uh, heading over to uh, Alberta? Yeah, well, you say yes a lot. My, um, my husband, Richard Anderson, tells a story that how he got into Major League Baseball was somebody asked him a question, could you drive a bus? And he said yes, because they didn't ask him, had you driven a bus? So there was a, <laughs> a big difference there. So I was in a community called Grand Prairie, Alberta. and um, for some strange reason, they were decentralizing their offices and put me in an office in an ice rink. So I was already in an ice rink. And then they decided they were gonna build a special event arena to accommodate something called the Canada Winter Games. And so they asked me, do you think you could run an arena? And of course they said, yes, because they didn't ask, had I run an arena? Right. <laughs> Can you? 
So I said, yes. And it was super exciting to be involved with the construction and opening. We had no idea what we were doing. And that's when I went to the management school and, and then came back with this, this whole village of people that could help me understand how to run an arena. And it just, just went from there. And um, you just end up being invited to uh, work in larger and larger arenas until you get to one of the largest in the world. So you actually helped open up, right, uh, part of the opening team with, uh, you know, Scotiabank Arena. Back then it was the, the Air Canada Center. Yeah, that was super exciting. So I decided, little girl from northern Canada running a very small arena, if I ever wanted to go anywhere in my career, I knew I had to get out of there and into a major market. And here's another example of why you should network with your peers. I had uh, graduated from venue management school in June. And Bob Hunter was an instructor there at the time, and he was running the operations at what was then Air Canada Centre, or going to be Air Canada Centre. At that point, it wasn't even completed yet. And I just happened to mention to Bob that very thing, that you know I, I really wanted to make progress in my career. I'd like to get out of Dodge, as it were. And he called me and said, I have a position if you'd be interested. And well, gosh, of course I was interested. So that November, I moved a really long thousands of miles away from a little city to a the biggest one in Canada and was on the team that moved everybody down from Maple Leaf Gardens, that iconic building, into the new building. So super exciting. It was the Toronto Maple Leafs, of course, who continue to disappoint us, but we won't talk about that. Um, and the Toronto Raptors, the basketball team. So also got introduced to what to me was a, a new sport, not a new sport, obviously, about basketball, but I'd never had experience with uh, professional basketball before. And it was Vince Carter's rookie year. I don't know if you guys remember um, yeah. Carter and it was Vince, so Vince sanity. to watch him. And yeah, it was just, it was just an incredible opportunity. So, you know, you were, you took on a role there as the director of guest services and security, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's kind of a, a different kind of position. So was it one of those things where you're kind of learning on the go there as well? Yes. And then um, I was also there, of course, for 9-11 and, and anyone involved in security at that time. Gosh, that was like drinking from a fire hose, especially if you were working with professional teams because everyone was scrambling to keep everybody safe. And we didn't even know what we were keeping them safe from really at that point. It was all quite terrifying um, yeah, so again, great learning, uh, especially the transition of staff from one building to the other, uh, hundreds of people, obviously, that had worked, in some cases, 50 years at one venue, um, moving them to another venue and, and raising the whole level of customer service and experience, because when a team's been around that long, like the Maple Leafs, and they have 110% or something sold out tickets every year right. and yeah. list of like thousands of people um, you can get a little um, lackadaisical about service so it was a real mission to to really up that service game in the new building so that was really exciting to be a part of too on a personal level was what did you think about going to like that bigger market of Toronto did you enjoy it was it you know, something you took to immediately or was it kind of challenging adjusting to that large of a city? Well, I went looking for penguins right away. No. <laughs> <laughs> they might have them in a zoo there, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the great aquarium, not too far from the arena. <laughs> yeah, I, I have just always seen life as a great adventure, you might have guessed. And this was just another adventure. Just hit the ground running and... Um, you know, just tried to learn something new every day, loved the experience. 
and really the only reason I left Toronto was my son was just becoming like a, a like a preteen and the building there as you might guess was super busy we used to say we worked 385 days a year because of the teams and all the events of course kind of the premier building in Canada and I realized that I needed to be home a little bit more I needed to have some semblance of a life and uh, so that's when I welcomed the opportunity to come actually to the U.S. and um, another construction project in Everett, Washington, a, a WHL hockey building, so still hockey, but obviously a lot smaller. It was um, 8,000 seats instead of 17, 18 plus. And so, yeah, I chose a little bit of lifestyle change from the big city, but I, I loved the city. Any of you that ever been to Toronto, it's the most cosmopolitan, vibrant city. They call it New York run by the Swiss. It's clean. It's relatively safe. Um, it's everything good about Canada. You know, it's a great oh. city. When you when you moved to you know, the the Comcast Arena, uh, which is now uh, Angel of the Winds Arena, was it a change? Because now you're living in a different country. And I didn't think it was going to be as much of a change as it was. There was a bit of a culture shock, uh, you know, from looking across the border. Um, our countries, on the face of it, look very much alike, but they're actually quite different in some levels. The second Christmas, I think I was there, I had a, a flyer come across my desk from, uh, they'd opened um, a Bass Pro Shop up the road. And so this flyer landed on my desk. I think somebody might've put it there on purpose. And right there on the cover was the uh, pink rifle suggestion that you should give your daughter for Christmas. And I copied it and sent it to all my <laughs> Canadian friends and said, I'm not in Canada anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. And yeah, so, so it was a bit different. Um, I dropped the A. Uh, from my vocabulary right away so it wasn't <laughs> quite as obvious but every now and then like I, I catch myself um I can't remember how I say about but apparently sometimes I say it in a very Canadian fashion it just slips out you can take the Canadian girl out of the country but you can't take some of those you know vocal slips out of her mouth so yeah um I have loved my time here I'm actually now an American citizen I did that a couple years ago because I really wanted to vote I really wanted to contribute to the future of the country. Um, so I have still a Canadian citizenship because Canada always recognizes you as Canadian, even the U.S. doesn't. And um, Very Canadian thing to do, by the way. Yeah, I think awesome. so. And we're not sorry about it either. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I still, if I run into somebody, stay sorry. So say sorry. I'll never drop that either. But, uh, you know, I, I, I moved around a lot when I was a kid, too. So I like to say I have really broad horizons, pretty shallow roots. But I see the best in everybody. You know, there's good things about both countries. And and the U.S. didn't get to be the country it was, you know, by being shy about it. And I really respect that there's so many things invented here. And, and the world really looks to us as being a leader, even in the venue industry. So um, very happy to be here. So, so how did you end up in, in Tacoma then? Somebody asked me to come and I actually resisted at first. I said, well, yeah, I, why? I'm perfectly happy where I am. But then I realized again, you know, you can't sit still. You always have to be walking forward into the light and uh, the opportunity to um, learn about other venue types really excited me. So I'd come up, as I mentioned, through the arena side, kind of a rink rat. And um, the fact that there was a convention center and theaters and a stadium, like everything is here. Um, so I actually purposely uh, selected that my office would be in the convention center when I first got here so I could immerse myself in all things convention center sure. and learn about that side of the business. So that was truly it. And as I've learned over my, my years here in Tacoma, it's an amazing community. 
Um, we have had some incredible leadership in the city itself. I mean, everyone who works for a city government knows there's frustrations about bureaucracy and all of those kind of things, but I have never not felt supported here. Uh, we all have on our bulletin board, ask forgiveness, not permission, which you know that we would never really tell the city manager that that's, that's what we do, but um, <laughs> they, you know, we've been able to educate them about what our industry is and why we need to be flexible and nimble, which aren't necessarily um, adjectives you'd use to describe city government normally, but this one really gets it. And everyone from the finance department to IT, everybody, you know, really helps us be successful because they understand what it means to the community to have these venues and how critical they are to just that they're the heart and soul of the community. It's it's really it's it's subjective and you can't you can't really assign a bottom line to it. If if these venues don't exist, the community really doesn't exist in its true fashion. So have felt really supported here in everything we've tried to do. When I first got here, I mentioned the dome was quite old and um, it hadn't had a lot of maintenance or love. And so my very first goal was I need to replace those 20,000 seats that have been in there for at that point, 30 years. And um, that was my opening to everybody. Anyone I ever talked to, I'm sure they got really tired of it. When I said, how am I going to find these seats? And, and, but we did it. Um, I think probably the clincher was um, these seats. It was really interesting. It was state of the art at the time when the building was built back in the 80s. They were literally these massive pie-shaped sections that we could take out on these huge industrial forklifts. And we put them in the parking lot when we were adjusting the configuration. Well, it rains a little up here, I will confess. And so this is metal things sitting outside. So you could well imagine that over the years, they got a little rusty looking. And so they would just paint them. And I said, well, stop painting them because we're, we're not kidding anymore. We need to replace these things. And the mayor at the time came over to watch um, state basketball championships and somehow got sat by probably the most rustiest section of seating. And it was How not convenient. that <laughs> that we were able <laughs> to get our funding uh, for the new seats, which actually turned into a much bigger project. We got about $30 million and were able to do some really meaningful work in the building, not just change out the seating, but add this beautiful artist quarters area, which as you know, we need to service our back of house customers as well as our front of house. So sure. we're able to give the front of house people some new restrooms and seating and the, the back of house customers, beautiful welcoming space. So, Kim, maybe this is uh, too long of a list, but if there's some things as we start to sort of come out of this last 15 months that you would like to see us not go back to, but maybe start over, maybe reset, maybe go in a different direction on, like I said, I can think of about 30 off the top of my head. You know, what do you think is maybe the best opportunity that we have? I think so many of us are just ready to like, oh, I just can't wait to get back to those crazy event nights or working those crazy hours. And I can't help but think, you know, talking to some people like maybe we shouldn't be eager to go back to that crazy work-life balance. Like maybe we should be eager to build a better industry. And when is a better opportunity than right now? Yeah, I agree with you. And the one area of focus for me is how we have treated our part-time complement. And we all, we need them, obviously, desperately to run our events. And um, what have we done to them? We've said, pay for your own parking, buy your own lunch, um, sit on the stairway and eat it. Like, and I'm not saying every venue has done this, but have we really thought about their journey? 
we want them to be super happy. We want them to engage with our customers in a positive manner, but how are we setting them up for success? So, you know, we need to, we need to understand how they get to work. You know, where are they going to park? How are we going to welcome them into the building? How are we going to give them the information that they need in order to best service our customer? You know, how are we looking after them? And what we're finding is, you know, is it's um, because they've been gone for so long and they had to feed their families, a great percentage of them might not come back. And so how do we ensure the care and feeding of the ones who are going to come back and let them know how special they are to us? And how are we going to attract others to work alongside them if, if we don't really consider them as human beings and not just, you know, not just a resource that we're using to accomplish an, an event. So I think that's one area that we can really, really improve on, really improve on. And some of the things we were able to do that we never would have done if the pandemic hadn't happened is, um, I'm gonna use that horrible pivot word again, I'm trying to erase it from my vocabulary, <laughs> but we were able to um, put a lot of online training together and really meaningful online training that people could pop on to work their way through at their own pace, just sign off that they'd done it so that when people did come back to work, they were at least all speaking the same language. We did a couple, we did a COVID focused one, which now seems like so yesterday. <laughs> and then we did uh, an equity and inclusion focused one because our city is really focused on transformation and, and being a non-racist city. And so everybody can come back to work and speak the same language and understand that they all have biases and how do we address them with our customers and that sort of thing. We never would have done that otherwise. And we never would have taken the time to do it. And so I think we, to your point, Paul, need to step back and think what's really important to us, what wasn't working before, and now's the opportunity for us to think about how to do it all better. Yeah, I mean, we don't have that excuse anymore of, you know, we've got to do this just because that's the way we've always done it and it's right. too much work to change it. Or there used to be that excuse of, oh, the public would never accept this because we're changing something and it would inconvenience them. I think now the public will accept whatever we give them. So, you know, you're seeing these buildings that maybe wanted to go to like a clear bag policy and were resisting it because they thought there would be this uproar. Now the public, like they're just happy to be back in a building. They don't care what restrictions you place on them. So, and you know, what's clear bag when it compared to masks and you know hand sanitizer and stuff like that so i think there is such a unique opportunity i really hope that venues and everyone promoters and people take advantage of it to make make us better than we've ever been and certainly some of the infrastructure changes that a lot of us were able to make because we got some infrastructure funding or cares funding like every one of our fixtures now is touchless and that's great because that's going to keep everybody healthy going forward anyway and, you know, the higher sanitation standards, well, it's just on us for having a pandemic be the impetus for us to keep our buildings cleaner. Um, I just think those are things that we're, we're going to value so much going forward. For sure. So speaking of going forward, we've talked so much about your adventure and where you've been, but Kim, what's next for you? Well, this is super exciting. And um, it's, it was a really hard decision because I think you can hear how much I love what I do here and how much I love the people here. But again, another opportunity came my way. I'm going to be going to Anaheim, California, to the Honda Center. And I'm going to be senior VP and GM of that building down there. So kind of a capstone wow. project. Um, they're doing some really cool things down there, not only the building itself, but they're doing a OC Vibe, which is a huge entertainment development. So building a 6,000 seat theater and a number of other 
entertainment-focused projects that I'll get to have a hand in as well. So I'm super excited. And um, they have a really long tenured, extremely qualified team, reputation second to none. So again, excited to work alongside a, a new group of incredible venue professionals. There's some great people down there that are, you know, like you said, some of the best. Dropping the big news here. That's exciting. That's congratulations. That's really, that's awesome to hear. And I, uh, you know, you can just send them all this, this podcast, uh, you know, to, here's to listen, but they get to know me a little bit. So that's the, you that's, know, that's, right. that's, a, yeah. that's our uh, welcoming gift uh, to the new Thank gig. You. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it's scary. It's always scary, you know, to go to a new place, doesn't matter how old you are, or how seasoned you are. Or it's, it's, it's scary, but it's scary. Good. You know, it's very exciting. It's very energizing. When you're going to such a mecca, you know, we've interviewed people on this podcast already from that greater LA, Anaheim market. And gosh, I mean, the amount of new venues that are being built there, stadiums, theaters. I mean, there's just so many announcements and they are coming back with a vengeance to live events. So it should be a really exciting, you know, time to be a part of that market. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and the thing about Anaheim is it's, again, it's like Tacoma versus Seattle. It's its own standalone market in a very busy market. And so there's some familiarity there of that type of landscape. So um, yeah, all, all good. I'm excited to work with Jim Ryan, who's still actually going to be there. He's going to be responsible for this massive project and, and be able to support his efforts too. So and, and you can just repurpose your joke, right? Now it's, now it's just a two-hour drive away from L.A., Right. So it's <laughs> exactly. like a four hour drive. Yeah, probably. Right? Yes, yes. They have even worse traffic than we do, I think. And I know there's penguins down there somewhere. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's, this is your whole career down. trajectory is the, the hunt for penguins. <laughs> Eventually, you're just going to retire to a penguin sanctuary down in Antarctica, probably. You know, it's their outfits. I mean, they're so well dressed. They're that's so well dressed. They, they are. Really yeah. <laughs> hey, Kim, before we let you go, we're going to hit you with our fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your uh, your your instant response here. So how about your first concert? Rush at the old Halifax Metro Arena and the scoreboard went on fire and everybody just, the lights came up and everybody just looked at each other. What do we do? And then they, you know, put the fire out and turned the lights out and carried on. <laughs> wow. What? That is so eventful. <laughs> how about your favorite concert? Oh, that's so hard. That's so hard. Um, Michael Bublé. How about your biggest pet peeve? Ooh, um, dust bunnies in the corner. <laughs> How about your favorite <laughs> favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh, I love lobster rolls. I love oh. them. Do I have to be guilty about that? Not at all. Not at oh. all. Last question, uh, Kim, what is, what is your theme song? So you've got your own TV show all about your life where they follow you around on your adventures from all, all around the world looking for penguins. What is the theme song to the show about your life? Maybe it's the theme song from Gilligan's Island, you know, that everyone is going to go on a four hour tour and ended up doing like an entire career's worth of, <laughs> of fun in a venue. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Kim, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Obviously, you you got a lot on your plate right now. So thank you for carving out some time for us and sharing your adventure and your, your passion for industry education. If somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best place for them to do that? Oh, um, gosh, well, I guess I'm going to have a new email pretty soon. Um, sure, on any of those social accounts, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, I'd be happy to connect. LinkedIn is you know, a great, great way to reach me. 
Um, I promise I'll check it more regularly <laughs> than I have <laughs> in the past if you do. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Kim, again, thank you for the time today and, and best of luck with the new gig. I know Tacoma's gonna miss you. Uh, thank you so much. You guys are great. Thanks for the conversation. And thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Some great adventures today. Uh, remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venue Land is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing Strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.